You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. Happy Christmas, everyone. We at LawPod UK are celebrating this Christmas in a very special way. Yes, we're in a studio at last. After nearly three years of remote interviewing, we have finally returned to the real business of audio. Headphones, microphones, a soundproof glass wall with a real producer behind it, our ever-versatile Philip, and real guests in front of me. Lucy McCann is one of my fellow LawPod presenters, and Jonathan Metzer ran One Crown Office Row's very successful blog for years, quietly keeping watch over it whilst managing a very busy practice. We've gathered here to give you a Christmas bouquet of cases, rulings and judgments that we foraged from the previous 12 months. Lucy and John are the experts, so I'll hand over to them. Let's start with Lucy. Hello. I think top of your list, Lucy, is the Molly Russell inquest, which concluded two months ago. Would you like to take us through it? Sure. Molly Russell, who was 14, killed herself in 2017 after seeing graphic images of self-harm on Instagram and Pinterest. The conclusion of the inquest was that Molly died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. Significantly, over the course of the inquest, the senior coroner, Andrew Walker, ruled that executives from Pinterest and Meta, which owns Instagram, must appear in court to give live evidence. I think that's a particularly interesting feature of the inquest. In his concluding remarks on the circumstances of Molly's death, the senior coroner remarked, The way that the platforms operated meant that Molly had access to images, video clips and text concerning or concerned with self-harm, suicide or that were otherwise negative or depressing in nature. Interestingly, very recently, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate published a report on TikTok's algorithm. So whilst TikTok wasn't a site that was the focus of the Molly Russell inquest, it is interesting to see the parallels between TikTok and sites like Instagram. This report found that the site pushes self-harm and eating disorder content to teenagers within minutes of them expressing an interest in the topic. For instance, by promoting content including restrictive diets, pro-self-harm content, and actually romanticising suicide to users. And it's particularly concerning that that's the case, even if they're registered as users under 18. The senior coroner continued, The platform operated in such a way using algorithms as to result in some circumstances to binge periods of images, video clips and text, some of which were selected and provided without Molly requesting them. It's interesting that... The inquest had, in the last six months of her life, Molly used Instagram up to 120 times a day, liking more than 11,000 pieces of content. He concluded, The sites normalised her condition, focusing on a limited and irrational view without any counterbalance of normality. The important conclusion was that it is likely that the above material viewed by Molly already suffering with a depressive illness and vulnerable due to her age, affected her mental health in a negative way 
and contributed to her death in a more than minimal way. Following the inquest, the coroner ordered a prevention of future deaths notice, which was sent to Instagram's owner Meta and Pinterest, as well as other sites like Snapchat and Twitter. The report was also sent to the Culture Secretary, Michelle Donnellan, and Ofcom. The report sets out a number of action points, including reviewing algorithms and age verification. Following the inquest, Molly's father, Ian, has urged social media firms not to drag their feet on incredibly important and clearly very much needed reforms. The hope is that Molly's story will provide a fresh impetus for new legislation to regulate big tech companies. And of course, one of those pieces of legislation is the online safety bill making its way through Parliament, which we've discussed in detail on LawPod UK. I'm afraid we, staying with the subject of death, uh, we move on to the next case, Morahan and the coroner for West London. John, you have something to say about this. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sorry that we've started this festive episode with such sad and sombre cases. And I know that there's already top legal punditry from Rory and Emma who discussed this case in detail on the main episode about this. Tanya Morahan was 34 years old. She had a history of paranoid schizophrenia and cocaine use and previous hospital admissions. She had been held as a formal patient at a community-based rehabilitation unit, but about two weeks before her death, uh, the section was rescinded, but she remained at the unit as a voluntary patient. On the 30th of June of 2018, she left the unit with permission, didn't return as required, but she did come back the next day. On the 3rd of July, she again left the unit with permission. This time, tragically, she didn't return. The trust made a request to the police and her flat was visited, but she didn't answer the door and she was found deceased on the 9th of July. And the finding of the pathologist was that she died of cocaine and morphine toxicity. Importantly, it seems to have been common ground that it was an accidental drug overdose. The question for the coroner was whether Article 2 of the European Convention should be found to be engaged. And that uh, will affect the way that an inquest will proceed in a number of ways, including making available judgmental conclusions, and also in practical terms, if Article 2 is found to be engaged, then an application for legal aid becomes a lot more likely to succeed. Coroner said Article 2 wasn't engaged and the family challenged this. And the divisional court gave a very detailed judgment reviewing a lot of the case law. And Lord Justice Popplewell said that an important feature has been in similar kinds of cases that the person has been vulnerable to a risk of taking their own life and that the operational duty would relate to whether there is a relationship between the control of the state and the specific risk which eventuated you'll remember that the operational duty is the duty that arises where the state has responsibility for a vulnerable person who is at real and immediate, that is, present and continuing risk of suicide, and the state knows or ought to know of that. However, it was stressed that there has to be a link between the risk which eventuated and the reason that the state has control for that person. And it was illustrated as follows, a psychiatric hospital owes no duty to protect a patient, whether voluntary or detained, from the risk of accidental death from a road traffic accident whilst on unescorted leave. 
This illustration is, is sort of using a, a, an extreme example to show where the duty wouldn't arise. Of course, the facts of this case were a, a bit more close to the line about which way it should go. And the other thing which the court did was set out when there will be an automatic engagement of Article 2. What they said on the facts of this case is that there was no history to suggest a real risk that Tanya Moraham would take her own life or suffer a drug overdose. There was no relevant assumption of responsibility because her condition wasn't linked to a foreseeable risk of an accidental death from a drug overdose. She wasn't found to be especially vulnerable in connection to that risk of accidental overdose and the risk was not exceptional because it was one to which you would be exposed as any other recreational drug user might be. The other important feature of the Divisional Court's judgment is that the circumstances in which Article 2 would automatically be held to be engaged are set out and they will include a suicide of an involuntary mental health detainee. The Court of Appeals decision is relatively succinct. They uphold the Divisional Court's judgment. They reaffirm that the operational duty is to protect against particular risks to life, not all risks. And Lord Burnett, the Lord Chief Justice, stated that there's no authority which decides that an Article 2 operational duty is owed to voluntary psychiatric patients to protect them from all risks of death. The risk of death in this sad case is an accidental death from the recreational use of drugs of a voluntary patient who was genuinely at liberty to come and go. It is far removed from the circumstances in Rabone, where the very purpose of being in hospital was to protect against the risk of suicide. The other thing about the Court of Appeals decision, which I think needs some thinking about, is that at paragraph 49, it's not totally clear to me what they mean, but they say that a voluntary patient at liberty to leave hospital uh, is not going to be a case where there will be an automatic investigative obligation. And then the judgment says as follows... That contrasts with the range of cases discussed in those authorities and identified by the Strasbourg Court as falling within the automatic category, including voluntary psychiatric patients being treated to manage suicide risk, like Ms. Rabone, who would be detained were they not to remain in hospital. This is not set out uh, in great detail, but it, it looks as though they're motioning towards the idea that if you have a voluntary psychiatric patient who would be an involuntary patient in the event that they refuse to consent to being treated, that might actually be an automatic case. I don't think that's what the divisional court said. I don't know whether this is decided here because it's, it's certainly obiter. They'd said earlier in the paragraph that the issues had already been sufficiently determined, but that seems to be pointing to the view that as has already been indicated in, in earlier decisions, that there is a sliding scale of voluntary psychiatric patients and the closer you get to being in substance an involuntary patient, the more likely the Article 2 duty will be engaged. And indeed here, if in substance the person would be detained were they not to be willing to remain in hospital, it may even be that automatically that will engage Article 2. John, do you think that the Court of Appeals decision marks a change in mood music towards Article 2 inquests in general? That's definitely, I think, the kind of wisdom among practitioners. But my view, and, and perhaps I say this from, from the perspective of representing families at mental health type inquests, I think every case does turn on its facts. And it's only an arguable 
breach of Article 2 that's needed. So I do think that's right. I do think that the approach of the court in this case and elsewhere has been towards saying that Article 2 will not always be engaged. But I, I don't think that people representing families should think the game is up. I think the reality is if there is a real question about whether the state provided adequate care to a patient for whom it was at least arguably responsible. I think there's there's still going to be a real question about whether Article 2 is engaged. I don't think that this case means that if the facts are right, Article 2 will not be found to be engaged. Now we turn to the Attorney General's reference concerning the acquittal of the so-called Colston 4 of criminal damage after toppling the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol. I wrote about this for our human rights blog and I was at pains to stress in my piece that this reference was not directed to the jury's verdict itself. It was simply to clarify the law on public protest to avoid confusion. John, can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Uh, absolutely. Edward Colston, he lived between 1636 and 1721. He was a Bristol-born merchant. He accumulated a large fortune, and that included through the transportation of enslaved people to the West Indies and America. He was also a big philanthropist and a tall bronze statue of him was put up a long time after his death in Bristol with the inscription, one of the most virtuous and wise sons. And that was subsequently grade two listed. But it's been controversial since the 1990s. And as we all know, after the protests arising from the murder of George Floyd, his statue was toppled, rolled through the streets to the harbour and heaved into the water. That led to criminal prosecutions. The four defendants were charged with damage to property and they raised a number of defences. We don't know which defences were the ones that succeeded. It might have been the human rights defences, which were considered then by the Court of Appeal. It might not have been. It might have been different defences. And indeed, it might have been that the jury simply refused to convict because we do have that safeguard that the jury can refuse to convict a person who is on trial without needing to explain why. That's an ancient safeguard. So we don't really know what was in the minds of those jurors. But the Attorney General referred the matter to clarify the scope of the human rights defence in a case like this in future. The direction that the trial judge had given to the jury was to ask themselves the following question. Are you sure that convicting the defendants of criminal damage would be a proportionate interference with their rights to freedom of thought and conscience and to freedom of expression? The reference was to clarify the following questions. First of all, does the offence of criminal damage fall within a category of offences identified in previous case law where conviction for the offence is intrinsically justified and proportionate in relation to any rights engaged under the European Convention? So if the answer to that question is yes then that will mean that the human rights defence couldn't even arise in relation to an, an accusation of criminal damage. If not, says question two, and you do need to consider the human rights issues, what principles should judges in the Crown Court apply? And question three, if the rights under Articles 9, 10 and 11 of the Convention are engaged, under what circumstances should any question of proportionality be withdrawn from a jury? Uh, we'd better do a bit of legal background very quickly. The case of the Director of Public Prosecutions and Ziegler, any fan of the West Wing will find remembering that case easy. The Supreme Court decided that a conviction for any offence arising out of peaceful protest involved a restriction of those rights under the Convention 
and therefore the prosecution should prove that the conviction would be justified and proportionate on the facts. But in a subsequent case, the DPP, and I'm going to say this completely wrong, but Kukurian, the divisional court held that Ziegler was only concerned with the unlawful obstruction of the highway, and it doesn't lay down a broad principle. Now, what did the Court of Appeal do? Well, I think that the prosecution would be happier than the defence with the outcome, but they didn't go all the way on question one. They said that it's correct that the conduct in this case would fall outside the protection of the convention such that proportionality would not arise. They cited a lot of Strasbourg authority and they noted that in a democratic society governed by the rule of law, Debates about the fate of a public monument must be resolved through the appropriate legal channels rather than covert or violent means. And they said that the concept of violence would not be confined to assaults on the person and may also include damage to property. So that distinction which the the counsel to the defendants in the criminal case had sought to draw between violence to the person, which was accepted, wouldn't be given the protection of the convention and damage to property wasn't seen as being a distinction important enough to decide the outcome. And then it was stated that in the context of public property, damage inflicted in a violent or non-peaceful manner attracts no convention protection against prosecution and conviction, and nor does causing sufficient damage, because its infliction could not sensibly be thought of as peaceful. Alternatively, prosecution and conviction would necessarily be proportionate. That's a paragraph 102. However, even though the court concludes in answer to question one that prosecution and conviction for causing significant damage to property during protest would fall outside the conviction, either because the conduct in question was violent or not peaceful, or alternatively, prosecution and conviction would clearly be proportionate, they did note that because the offence of criminal damage encompasses even damage which is minor or temporary, that if a prosecution arising out of something minor were to be brought then proportionality would need to be considered. They said the circumstances are very limited as to when that might arise. The example that was given was scrawling a message on a pavement using water-soluble paint, which might technically be enough to sustain a charge of criminal damage, but for which prosecution or conviction might be seen as a disproportionate response to a political protest. So, generally... They were with the prosecution, but they left that exception for minor criminal damage arising from political protest. In terms of question two and three, so clarifying the principles that should be applied and when the issue should go before the jury, it was explained that a judge should withdraw an issue from the jury if no reasonable jury, properly directed, could reach a particular conclusion. That the convention does not provide protection to those who cause criminal damage during protest which is violent or not peaceful, and that Articles 9, 10 and 11 will not be engaged in those circumstances so proportionality won't arise. That prosecution and conviction for causing significant damage to property, even if it's inflicted in a way which is peaceful, could not be disproportionate in convention terms. But that it is theoretically possible that cases involving minor or trivial damage to property heard in the magistrate's court, albeit, said the court, significant damage would be caused a long way below the £5,000 threshold for cases to be tried summarily, may raise a question of proportionality. In those limited circumstances, a conviction 
may not be a proportionate response in the context of protest. So they cut back the human rights defence to damage to property very significantly. They've, they've cut it back perhaps from a tree to a quite small plant, which will only apply really in very limited cases. Thank you, John. And, and there's more recently, there's been another Attorney General reference in the context of protests, the Abortion Services Safe Access Zones Northern Ireland Bill. Uh, the bill is really designed to protect the right of women to access abortion and associated sexual and reproductive health services. So wh- how come this came before the Supreme Court? It, it's very interesting, isn't it, how these cases on different facts still engage these rights and the courts need to decide how they will apply. This arose because uh, in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Assembly passed a bill primarily designed to protect the rights of women to access abortion and associated health services and it prohibits protests against abortion and other specified behaviour within certain safe access zones around abortion clinics. And and you can understand the logic there, it's um, very distressing indeed and difficult even sometimes to get into a clinic if you've got people who are against abortion are protesting just outside. The question there again, in a way, was whether that would engage the protections to freedom of expression and associated rights under Articles 9, 10 and 11 of the Convention. The court held that the relevant clause of the bill was compatible with the convention rights of the anti-abortion protesters and therefore was within the legislative competence of the Assembly. Why did they say that? Essentially the reason for that was that the clause was found to be justified. First of all, the restriction was prescribed by law. Secondly, the aim of that clause was found to be legitimate, seeking to ensure that women have access to advice and treatment relating to the lawful termination of pregnancy, which in itself will engage Article 8 and also, indeed, enabling staff to work at abortion clinics, which will also engage Article 8. We see how, when it's a human rights assessment, sometimes you have to consider different rights which potentially are in tension with each other. Thirdly, the restrictions imposed by the clause were proportionate. First, the context was a highly sensitive one, involving the protection of the private lives and autonomy of women, Secondly, women who wish to access lawful abortion services have a reasonable expectation of being able to do so. Thirdly, the bill only prevents the protesters from exercising their rights within certain designated safe access zones. Fourthly, the women and staff protected by the clause are a captive audience who are compelled to witness the activity which is unwelcome and intrusive when they visit these premises. Fifthly, the bill is designed to implement the UK's obligations under the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Sixthly, the maximum penalty for an offence under the clause is a fine of up to £500, so not a very heavy fine. Uh, And then seventhly, this was one of those cases where states would have a wide margin of appreciation in balancing the different rights under the Convention. So, staying with protests, let's cast our mind back to the very limited form of protest that we were allowed during the lockdown years. And there was the case of the Sarah Everard vigil called Lee and the Commission of Police. Lucy, what happened there? I think this case is interesting, particularly because it involves weighing up Article 10 and 11 rights that John has already discussed in the context of the Colston 4 activities, but in the context of COVID regulations and having to balance public health measures 
against convention rights. This case was a year after the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Metropolitan Police officer. The Divisional Court decided on a challenge to the Metropolitan Police's response to the proposed vigil for Sarah Everard, organised by Reclaim These Streets on Clapham Common. The aim of the vigil was to highlight risks to women's safety and to campaign to change attitudes and responses to violence against women. However, the vigil was being held during COVID-19 restrictions. At the time, London was in Tier 4, which prohibited gatherings of more than 30 people in public outdoor spaces. The Metropolitan Police refused to sanction the plan for the vigil and it was essentially cancelled, resulting in a huge amount of backlash and I'm sure we all remember the incredibly powerful pictures of the women who decided, regardless, to gather on Clapham Common to attend that vigil. The claimants challenged a series of decisions made by the Metropolitan Police surrounding the vigil which ultimately led to the decision to cancel it. The High Court upheld the claimant's challenge. In determining whether infringing the claimant's Article 10 and 11 rights was permissible, the High Court said the police were under a duty to do two things. Firstly, to engage in a fact-sensitive proportionality assessment, and secondly, consider the possibility that the exercise of Article 10 and 11 rights might constitute a reasonable excuse for the breach of COVID regulations. So it was interesting to hear John talk about the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions and Ziegler because that's the very case that the High Court referred to in this case. The High Court noted that while such an assessment was a somewhat onerous task, the practical burden had been considerably overstated by the Metropolitan Police. Which uh, you, can, you can see what they mean there, can't you? That's it's tactfully put. Yeah, exactly. And so they refer to this case of Ziegler and list a number of considerations that could factor into such a proportionality assessment, including the nature and extent of the potential breach of domestic law and whether the protest related to, quote, very important issues. And I think this touches on what you were saying, John, what constitutes a very important issue. And 2022 saw a whole range of different protests in response to Black Lives Matter, women's safety and access to abortions and courts necessarily have to undertake quite a subjective assessment of what they consider to be very important issues. I I totally agree. I mean, we don't want our courts to be overly politicised, but it's not always easy to draw a clean line because values, at what point do values and issues become quasi-political? I remember various anti-lockdown protests being very swiftly taken down and nobody complaining about it. Indeed. Um, So in this case, the court did apply Ziegler and I think in a much broader way than they did in the Colston 4 decision and considered what factors might be relevant to any such assessment had it been undertaken. For instance, the divisional court said that the public health picture that led to the tier four regulations would be relevant, as would the importance of the views that would be expressed in the vigil. And interestingly, the likelihood that protesters would take their own precautions against COVID-19. For instance, I saw lots of posts on Facebook of people saying, if you are going to attend the vigil, do a lateral flow test. Don't turn up if you're symptomatic. And so the court was saying these are the kinds of things they would expect the police 
to think about when conducting such an assessment. Absolutely, and I'm going to sound like such an annoyingly didactic human rights lawyer, but it does show you how sensitively the court will look at the facts. And when we talk about human rights cases, it's it's sometimes tempting to take a very blanket view, but often it will turn on the facts. Absolutely, and, and it's a real shame that in this case, the court then didn't really delve into those issues because the ultimate decision was that they needed to undertake an assessment full stop, and they never did that. The second question, therefore, was whether the exercise of Article 10 and 11 rights might constitute a reasonable excuse for the breach of COVID regulations. The Divisional Court found they didn't. Statements from the police assumed that the vigil would automatically and inevitably be unlawful simply because it contravened rules on public gatherings. Mr Justice Holgate added a concurring judgment, which I think is quite interesting. He observed that the Metropolitan Police's decision-making in this particular case flowed from the guidance drawn up by the National Police Chiefs Council, which also failed to accord proper weight to the principle of proportionality or the prospect of reasonable excuse. As such, he found that the unlawful chilling effect, which confronted the organisers of the Reclaim These Streets vigil, was one outworking of a much broader flaw in the Metropolitan Police's approach to the COVID-19 regulations. Cases like these really highlight how vulnerable human rights are in situations of national emergency and really stress test where national priorities lie, I think. I absolutely agree. And staying with national emergencies and COVID and so on, we only have to cast our minds back to the beginning of 2020 to remind ourselves of how panic-stricken everybody was and how little we knew about this virus. And this is crystallised in a challenge to certain policy documents concerning the discharge of hospital patients into care homes during the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, Or put more controversially, it was about the deaths of the claimant's fathers following the discharge of COVID-19 positive patients from hospital into care homes. The Gardner case was a challenge to these documents. Lucy, can you tell us something about it? As you say, Rosalind, 2022 saw a significant amount of litigation arising from the pandemic. And Gardner, in my opinion, is one of the most significant COVID-19 cases, especially within public law, that this year brought us. It concerns two 2020 policies on discharging hospital patients to care homes at the start of the pandemic. As you say, the claimants were relatives of two elderly care home residents out of approximately 20,000 who sadly died of COVID-19 during the first wave of the pandemic in 2020. The claimant submitted that the policies directed the mass discharge of hospital patients into care homes without testing, isolation and the appropriate guidance in relation to PPE or indeed any assessment of whether the care homes could provide safe care. The consequence being that large numbers of infected patients came into closed environments containing particularly vulnerable sections of the population. There were a number of aspects of this challenge, but I think two are worth focusing on. Firstly, the human rights claim, and secondly, the judicial review. On the human rights claim, the claimants alleged that the policies in 2020 were a breach both of the state's operational and systemic duties under Article 2. They also bought Article 8 claims. The systemic duty was dismissed by the Divisional Court on the basis that a framework was put in place to protect care home residents in the form of the guidance. 
Now, John has very helpfully recapped what the operational duty under Article 2 is in his recap of Morahan. So I won't go into what the operational duty is, but in the same manner that the court dismissed systemic duty, they also dismissed that an operational duty arose here. This is because the operational duty does not extend as far as requiring the state to take all reasonable steps to avoid real and immediate risk to life posed by a pandemic to, and I quote, a broad and undefined sector of the population as residents of care homes for the elderly. Therefore, the Article 2 claim failed. I think this is significant because it stems the possibility of individuals bringing human rights claims off the back of this decision in Gardner. The second significant challenge was the judicial review. On this challenge, the Divisional Court found that the guidance was unlawful on the basis that in deciding to adopt the policies, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care failed to take into account the relevant consideration of a risk to elderly and vulnerable residents from asymptomatic transmission. Accordingly, the Divisional Court found that each document was irrational in failing to advise that where an asymptomatic patient, other than one who had tested negative, was admitted to a care home, he or she should, so far as practicable, be kept apart from other residents for 14 days. The claim against NHS England was dismissed on the basis that it was not responsible for making such arrangements. In reaching this conclusion, the Divisional Court was careful to stress that it was only assessing the guidance on the facts that were known to decision-makers at the time and were not going to exercise any hindsight. Uh, And as a result, I think the judgment is a really valuable exposition of the developing scientific knowledge around COVID-19 over the course of 2020. Regardless of this conclusion, I can't see much, if any, scope there is of translating this finding of irrationality into any private law claims for damages in the future. Certainly, findings of public law unlawfulness could not form a basis for a private law claim. And I think, in the circumstances, claimants would need to establish a common law duty of care, which I imagine would be very difficult on these facts. So, despite this being a very significant judgment, I don't think it sets a broader precedent for any further litigation. Indeed. And of course, the claimants in in the Gardner case had standing to take the case because, of course, they were relatives of people who had died. There was another COVID-era challenge where standing was in issue, the Ronnie Mead Trust case. Lucy, do tell us about that. Yeah, so the case of Good Law Project and Ronnie Mead Trust and the Prime Minister is primarily of interest because of what it has to say on standing. But it is, as you say, one of a series of cases surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. This case is referred to in Emma's recent episode with Sir Jonathan Jones, and I would highly recommend having a listen to their discussion, both about this case, but also their discussion as a whole. It's fascinating. Rosalind has also written about this judgment in detail on the blog, and I'd also recommend having a read of the detail of this decision because it is very interesting and it's particularly interesting on the question of standing. So questions of standing haven't been contentious really I think since a cluster of decisions in the 1990s. Yeah I remember at law school our admin law lecturer said you don't need to worry about standing anymore it's it's, it's a dead letter. No I know I just remember the case names but I couldn't really tell you much about them. However, with the increase of public interest litigation brought by more general campaigning groups like the Good Law Project, this has brought the question of standing back to the fore. 
and a series of decisions in 2022 involving the Good Law Project, I think, signal a steer away from a more liberal approach to standing. And I think it's actually worth reading Lord Diplock on standing because bearing that in mind when you then read the decisions in this case is pretty interesting. In the Inland Revenue Commissioner's case, the sort of formative case on standing, Lord Diplock said, it would, in my view, be a grave lacuna in our system of public law if a pressure group like the Federation or even a single public-spirited taxpayer were prevented by outdated technical rules on locus standi from bringing unlawful action to the attention of the court to vindicate the rule of law and get the unlawful action stopped. So I would say that's a classic exposition of the liberal position on standing. And until this year, the Good Law Project has had a run of notable successes bringing judicial reviews. And even when unsuccessful, standing wasn't raised as an issue. Before the Runnymede case, the Good Law Project brought a challenge against the Minister of the Cabinet Office with regard to PPE procurement during the pandemic. So it's another COVID-19 case. And in this case, although the Minister didn't appeal the High Court's finding that the Good Law Project had standing to challenge the contract, despite it having no interest in winning the contract itself, the Court of Appeal expressed significant concern about the trend towards allowing such public interest challenges to public contracts. The Lord Chief Justice noted, the question of standing for complete strangers to the procurement process with no commercial interest, both under the regulations and on public law grounds, is a question ripe for review when it next arises. And indeed, it did next arise almost immediately in the Runnymede case, again with the Good Law Project. Now, the decision in the Runnymede case is lengthy. It runs to 551-ish paragraphs, um, but a substantial proportion of the judgment focuses on the issue of standing. Now, the nature of challenge is, of, of course, really important to the question of standing. You can't really look at one without the other. So very briefly, in this case, the claimants contended that the government's practice of appointing people to head COVID projects, such as promoting Dido Harding to heading the Test and Trace programme, was indirectly discriminatory on the grounds of race and or disability. So it was essentially a discrimination claim. The High Court concluded that the Runnymede Trust, a charity which exists specifically to promote the cause of racial equality, had standing to challenge the two appointments that were made without compliance to the public sector equality duty. But the Good Law Project did not. The High Court held... No individual, even with a sincere interest in public law issues, would be regarded as having standing in all cases. We do not consider that the position differs simply because there is a limited company which brings the claim. It also cannot be right, as a matter of principle, that an organisation could, in effect, confer standing upon itself by drafting its objects clause so widely that just about any conceivable public law error by any public authority falls within its remit. It cannot be supposed that the Good Law Project now has a carte blanche to bring any claim for judicial review, no matter what the issues and no matter what the circumstances. The same approach was then taken to the Good Law Project standing with the same conclusion in a further case that the Good Law Project brought against the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, another COVID case about contracts with Abingdon Health to supply lateral flow tests. 
it's interesting to see if this formalistic approach actually extends beyond the good law project, because unfortunately it's just the good law project who seem to be getting a bit of a battering in this regard. But it could indicate a significant change in judicial mood on the question of standing and potentially public interest judicial reviews more generally. It might do. I mean, I think we do have to ask ourselves, do we want to go down the road of saying you've got to be the right sort of person or organisation to challenge a potential public law error? I mean, my feeling is, isn't it better to play the ball rather than the player? Uh, And do we want there to be a lot of litigation around standing? I don't know. I think it depends on where we're going to go with these decisions. But generally, I think, if there is a public law error, should it matter who it is that identifies it to the court? If there isn't a public law error, then the case can be dismissed on that basis. Well, it's going to ultimately be a political situation one way or another. The organisations that you approve of can go to court, but the ones that you don't can't. Uh, it's just often the way it's always it's very difficult for us to get past uh, you know where we're coming from when we come exactly. to any question we'll stay with controversy now um touching on the arrival of illegal immigrants on small boats at dover and this has come out with a number of cases but certainly the, an important one is R on the application of HM and Secretary of State for the Home Department. This was about seizure of mobile phones wasn't it John? That's right. Um, two of the claimants arrived at Dover Western Docks in May 2020 uh, and then the third claimant arrived in September and in common with other arrivals they were medically assessed and then arrested under the Immigration Act 1971. They were searched and their mobile phones were seized and data on two of the individual's phones was extracted and retained. It took almost a year for their phones to be returned and indeed the phone of one of the claimants was returned after the proceedings. By the time of the substantive hearing, which was in January, the defendant had conceded the bulk of the claim And it's interesting as to how we got there. And the second judgment in this case, which we will turn to, goes into this in detail. But essentially, in the initial response to the judicial review, the defendant had said that the assertion of a blanket policy in relation to the seizing and retention of mobile phones, apparently based on anecdote and surmise, ignores the following. Firstly, as a matter of law, any seizure and retention of a digital device from an illegal entrant was lawful under Section 48 of the Immigration Act. And secondly, as a matter of fact, devices are not seized in the case of every migrant who is searched. Now that was wrong. That wasn't the position, and indeed in the detailed grounds, the Secretary of State accepted that there had been a blanket policy of seizure being operated, which was admitted not to be in accordance with the law by reason of being a blanket policy and by reason of being unpublished, such that there was a breach of Article 8 and of the Data Protection Act. But what was an issue in the substantive judicial review was the scope of the powers to search those arrested and to seize property from them. And the court looked at a few potential powers. They looked at paragraph 25B of Schedule 2 of the Immigration Act 1971, which grants a limited power of search where there are reasonable grounds for believing that the arrested person may present a danger to himself or others, or may have things which he might use to escape custody. But it was found that those provisions were not utilised when the searches were undertaken, and indeed there was nothing to suggest that those arriving wished to escape custody. 
Then it was argued by the defendant that Section 48 of the Immigration Act 2016 was applicable. Now, this power authorised the searching of premises, and it was said that that impliedly authorised the search for person and the power to seize. Uh, But the court disagreed, uh, and the court restated the famous principle of legality, which is that fundamental rights cannot be overridden by general or ambiguous statutory words. And even though Sir James Eady, for the defendant, warned of potentially serious consequences if a restrictive interpretation to Section 48 was taken, the court said either the police can be called in or Parliament can legislate to give the powers which the government says it needs. The second judgment, which is discussed on the episode with Sir Jonathan Jones, addresses the question of how did this happen? How did the defendant come to operate an unlawful policy? And why was his existence initially denied? The court reaffirmed the importance of the duty of candour. And it's a, a very important duty because if a claim is being brought against the government, the government holds a lot of the cards. And so the government mustn't as it were, keep the cards in the deck. They need to be put out in the open so that the court can come to the right decision on the facts. Uh, And it was said that there was a collective error of judgment in the response to the claim and that the duty of candour was reaffirmed as being of great importance in judicial reviews. So this all takes place in the context of the government's policy to send asylum seekers to pursue their claims from Rwanda. That, of course, has come under a certain amount of... Uh, pressure and controversy, hasn't it? Yes, highly controversial policy. And the main challenge has been heard by the High Court. Judgment's probably going to have been handed down between the time of recording this podcast and the time you're listening to it, which is obviously great news for us preparing it. You'll know the outcome probably when you listen to this. So much for public law. We haven't really covered many private law cases, but there's an important case on duty of care owed by medical practitioners, dentists, in other words, to the to other dentists' patients, Hughes and Ratton. John, tell us about that. Absolutely. And, and this is quite a good illustration, I think, of how the law is always seized with the questions that are relevant to the times. And the first case that we, that we talked about that Lucy explained, the Molly Russell tragic inquest, that's such a modern case engaging social media. Hughes and Ratton, in a way, is modern too, The leading case on vicarious liability and clinical negligence, Cassidy and the Ministry of Health, made clear shortly after the birth of the NHS that an NHS hospital, the hospital authority, would be liable for the negligence of its employed doctors and surgeons. But times have changed. Services now are often outsourced or undertaken by contractors rather than employees specifically. And Hughes and Ratton sees the Court of Appeal engaging with that and deciding whether there would be a non-delegable duty of care and or whether there would be vicarious liability attaching to the owner and sole principal dentist at a practice which provided dental treatment to the claimant, not by the defendant himself, but by several different dentists working at the practice. They were self-employed associate dentists, each holding their own professional indemnity cover, each being responsible for their own work and their clinical audits and having clinical control over the dental treatment that they provided. But the claimant maintained, all that being said, really she was a patient of the practice, not of the individual dentists, and it should be the practice that should be the defendant to the allegations of clinical negligence by those dentists. The 
court said that the defendant did owe a non-delegable duty of care to the claimant in respect to the treatment received, so the defendant was the correct defendant. Uh, although, interestingly, the court also said that in terms of vicarious liability, even though the trial judge had applied the criteria according to the law as it stood, the Barclays case, which I think we discussed on the podcast last year, had changed the framework and they would have been inclined, if they'd needed to decide the question, to have said that vicarious liability wouldn't have attached. So that was that decision. And in fact, well, all the decisions we've discussed are important ones and well-known legal circles. But let's move on now to something that really hit the press big time. Vardy and Rooney. John. Oh, yes. Well, I, I was definitely Team Rooney, so... I was very pleased at the result. I mean, I think that the judgment is carefully reasoned and, and thoughtful and thorough, uh, and um, one can see why it, it hasn't gone further. The bit of Vardy and Rooney that I thought might be quite nice to talk about was the reliance uh, on an authority from 1721, which was that if a wrongdoer has parted with relevant evidence, the court may draw adverse inferences. In this case, it was because Rebecca Vardy's phone very unfortunately found its way to the bottom of the North Sea so that potentially decisive evidence couldn't be considered by the court. That was the basis to draw an adverse inference. The leading case, Armory and Delamory, involved a chimney sweeps boy who found a jewel in the setting of the ring and he took it to the shop of a goldsmith to obtain a valuation. At the shop, an apprentice who was acting as the agent of the defendant surreptitiously removed the gem from the setting in the pretense of weighing it, gave the setting back empty and said that it was only worth three halfpence. What the court said was that as to the value of the jewel, several of the trade were examined to prove what a jewel of the finest water that would fit in the socket would be worth and the Chief Justice directed the jury that unless the defendant did produce the jewel and shew it not to be of the finest water, they should presume the strongest against him and make the value of the best jewels the measure of their damages, which they accordingly did. What I think that means is that because the defendant couldn't produce the jewel, the jury was directed that they should assume it to be as valuable as it could reasonably be said to be. So an adverse inference is drawn against the wrongdoer. So both of you, this is a question for both of you, Look, I live near the North Sea and I have my head in the sand and my feet in the clouds and I never read the news. So I don't know what Vardy and Rooney is all about. Rosa, I'm surprised you're not following the careers of these celebrities in detail. I mean, I know you're very busy, but... I do actually know who Wayne Rooney is, so I know more than you, Rosalind, but not much more. It concerned a sort of controversy that has been labelled Wagatha Christie, one wife of a footballer against the other where Colleen Rooney accused Rebecca Vardy of leaking information from her Instagram stories to the tabloid press. And how did that libel claim fare before the court? Well, it's amazing that it actually appeared before a court, I think is um, fair to say. I don't think Rebecca Vardy had a very strong claim, but wanted to see it through to the bitter end. It went all the way, yeah. And Colleen Rooney successfully defended herself. The claim was dismissed on the grounds of truth. And uh, Mrs Justice Stain was very critical of the evidence given by Rebecca Vardy. So staying with things that are modish, what about revenge porn? Yeah, sorry to bring the mood back down again, but I think this case is interesting to talk about and it has just come out. 
It concerns Georgia Harrison and her case against her former partner, Stephen Bear. Both of them have several million followers on social media and found fame in popular reality TV shows like Love Island, Celebrity Big Brother, X on the Beach. Of course, Rosalind, I'm sure you're well up to date with the reality stars from those programmes. But the case is a revenge porn case. So the pair were captured having sex in Stephen Bear's garden on his CCTV. He then sent this footage to a friend on WhatsApp without George's permission. And then several months later, it was found uploaded on OnlyFans, which is a site that regularly gets used by sex workers to put up content that they've made themselves. Again, this was posted on OnlyFans without Georgia knowing. Stephen Bear was found guilty of sharing private sexual pictures and videos with intent to cause distress. I think this case is really interesting because prosecuting these kinds of cases often proves very difficult because the intent element of the offence is difficult to prove. And so this decision is particularly welcome and I really hope it sets an important precedent in the future for revenge porn cases. It's also a very high-profile case and there aren't many of its kind. Revenge porn, i.e. non-consensual pornography or image-based sexual abuse, only became illegal in 2015. Harrison had the right to remain anonymous as a victim of sexual abuse, but she waived this right to raise awareness of the effect that revenge porn can have. I thought that was an incredibly brave decision and one that I think will have wide-reaching consequences. And I think this case does have cultural reach. Both have several million followers on social media. Lots of those followers might not have been aware of the implications of revenge porn and the consequences that can follow from even sharing videos on WhatsApp between friends. And again, I think this case brings into the spotlight the online safety bill. And I hope it will bring greater protection for victims of abusers. The online safety bill, for instance, bringing in hopefully a ban on sharing deep fakes, another dark aspect of the internet. That, Lucy, is a subject of a possibly another podcast episode, deep fakes being used in litigation in court as evidence. This is a big problem that has been highlighted recently in Council magazine. So thank you very much, both of you, for taking us through these very complicated technical cases and casting some light on them. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We're all ready for a break now. Happy Christmas again to all our listeners. And you'll be hearing from us again in 2023. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and produced by One Crown Office Row.